In April 2020, just as the global pandemic was kicking off, Lawrence and I started recording our weekly Friday Firesides. These are conversations broadcast live over the Crowdcast platform and joined by people all over the world who listen in and share their thoughts with us via the chat. We started these live recordings as an opportunity to keep in touch with our members, as well as process what it meant to run a business during a pandemic. Since then, we've broadcast nearly every single Friday and built up a library of over 100 episodes. We cover a range of different topics from money to meaning, pricing to purpose, vision to vulnerability, entrepreneurship to empathy, and product design to life design. This is our perspective of what it means to do business from the inside out, as well as the outside in. If you're a business hippie just like us, then you'll definitely find something of value here. We hope that these conversations inspire and motivate you to do work and build businesses that create meaningful change without burning out. Because like us, you're just wanting to make money, do good and be happy. So I'm Aisha, uh, Aisha Birsel, and I was born in Turkey, in Izmir, and I grew up there. So he- hello, Pelin, merhaba, and if there are <laughs> any other Turks. And I grew up in a family of lawyers, and I was set to become a lawyer. Then I thought, well, I love to draw, so maybe I should do something more artistic, and I was going to become an architect. But then a family friend came to tea and talked to me about industrial design. And I had never heard those two words together before. And I thought, yeah, that's interesting. And the way he talked about it, you know, I love tea, right? Here we go. Mm-hmm. And he said, you see how the edge of this cup is curved? It's so that it can fit our, our lips better. And it has a handle so you can hold hot liquid in your hands without burning yourself. And then it has a saucer so that if you spill your tea, you won't ruin your, your mother's beautiful tablecloth. And in that moment, I fell in love with this, the human scale of, of design. And I thought, that's what I want to do. And that's what I've been doing. And I've designed everything from office systems to concept cars to potato peelers to toilets. And in fact, I was known as the queen of toilets uh, for a while, which... I took as a great compliment because, I mean, who gets to design toilets, right? It's a, it's a privilege. Most of you might have used or sat in something that I've designed without knowing it. <laughs> so then um, at one point, I took all of this and started thinking to myself, well, how do I design? Like, what goes on in my head? And I worked on kind of externalizing that for a year and I sketched and thought about how I design in my process and from that uh, developed deconstruction reconstruction and I would show it to my friends I'd like okay this is how I design and they'd be like wow it's so complicated you know (laughs) we don't understand you so then I had to like simplify it and simplify it until it became something that was like the simplicity on the other side of complexity. And then once I had that, I, I've always thought that our lives, like our life is our biggest project. And I thought, well, now I have a design process. Why don't I apply it to my life and see if life is truly a design project? 
or that if my my process works. And so that's what I did. And from that developed, um, designed the life you love. And the interesting thing about that was like, you saw how long it took me to explain what industrial design is, right? It usually takes me like five to 10 minutes for people to understand what we do. But then if I tell someone, hey, I teach people how to design their lives, they go immediately, oh, I want to try that. I want to design my life. <laughs> so it's kind of like something so natural for us. It's, um, it requires no explanation. So then people started coming to design the life you love. And then, you know, and it became a book. There's quite a few things I wanted to just explore with you there. There's the immediately there's the book writing process and what that meant for you and for people who you know have ideas and they want to get them out there and communicate them what that really takes and your experience of it there's this idea of okay people really attracted to the idea of designing their own lives and what's behind that so be curious around that uh, but then to begin with and maybe there isn't something here but i, I want to i'd like to just check you said you felt a need to understand how you design essentially i think essentially this process of deconstructing your process which, which is what? called deconstruction reconstruction so thank you <laughs> awesome it's, so it's all very it's all very, very meta. meta exactly <laughs> uh, so was there a, but you know I, I don't know maybe did you just wake up and say oh i really should do this or was there something that actually this there was there a need to, what was the thing that triggered you to actually start that even it's such a good question, Carlos. It, yeah. Uh, well, I woke up one day and realized that um, it was 2008 and all our clients had taken their work in-house because of the uh, economic downturn in the States. And I hadn't seen this coming. We were, it was, I was partners and I still am, but you know, with BBSEC, my um, husband and partner, who's an automobile designer. Um, we had three young kids, uh, my stepson and our two daughters. And the economy turned. And with it, all our clients took their work in-house. And I was like, what just happened? You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> we were so successful and we were working with like some of the top brands um, in the States. And it, of course, made so much sense for them. Like, I totally understand it. We were on the outside and they, they were cutting budgets. But long story short, I thought, um, I'll, you know, it's okay. I'll go find a job job. So I went to see headhunters. <laughs> and then the headhunters were like, Aisha, you know, you're not employable because you, you've <laughs> never worked in an office before. And it's true. I've always had my own studio. And I was like, but I design office systems. They're like, well, that doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, um, I found myself with a lot of time in my hands and I really felt um, pressured because, you know, when you don't have kids, it's okay. You, you can manage, manage by, right? But when you have kids and you have to put bread on the table, it's a lot of stress. So this friend of mine, Leah Kaplan, who's one of my oldest friends and collaborators, she said to me, look, Aisha, you have all this time in your hands. Why don't you use this time to think about how you think? Because you think differently. And mm. that was kind of the declic for me where I thought, mm. oh, one person still believes 
that I think differently and I have something to offer. And uh, I read recently that uh, all you need is one person to believe in you, mm. uh, but that person can't be your mom. So, so Leia was that one person for me. And I thought, okay. So then I started like that. That's what got me started. And I started literally like mapping out my brain and sketching mm. how I think. It makes me think of that, um, that uh, YouTube video of the guy on the side of the hill. You've probably seen that. The festival, he starts dancing. He's a bit of a crazy guy. I don't know if he's done something. And then I think Derek Sivers did a TED talk about it. But then the next guy who copies him as a joke is the kind of the ally almost. And then off that back of that a whole movement starts. So yeah, she was, and, and your, everybody's uh... dancing, right? Yeah, so, exactly. So everybody deconstruct your process <laughs> <laughs> and then reconstruct it, of course, you know? Hmm. So there's a, an element of circumstance, like you said, 2008 crisis. All right. Needing to do something. I loved the, the, the way you call it. I need to get a job job. <laughs> Not a pretend job. <laughs> It's as if I haven't been working for the past however long, <laughs> and now I have to work. And so I just, I just want to look into that as well, because this is something I think people in our community be interested in, because there is this element of, like, work is hard, and there's the job job, and then, well, what is it? How would you describe it in terms of the contrast between what you were doing before and then having to get a job job? You know, when you're your own boss, as I think many of you here are, there there is a sense of freedom that you get to decide what you want to work on, when you want to work on it, how you want to work on it, who you want to work with. And that freedom is worth quite a bit for us uh, and balances out all the um, uncertainties, right, and the difficulties and the challenges and the hard work. And kind of that sense of taking initiative of your life and my sense of, well, I don't know what a job job is like because I <laughs> still <laughs> haven't <laughs> landed one. But uh, I think the idea is that, you know, you have a boss, somebody else makes certain decisions for you and you, that work is regulated. And of course, like COVID changed a lot of this and I think gave many people a taste of being their own boss even when they're employed by someone else yeah, that's just the important aspect of this i think i wanted to pick up on which i because i believe a lot of people who are who follow our work who are interested in what we do are free spirits or caged potentially free spirits as well because you talked about this idea of autonomy and freedom and um choice and it kind of leads me on to the next bit of the question was around why people are so interested in this idea of designing their life i've got this analogy of like this whole life being a race kind of thing and what happens is like at the beginning you've seen everyone at this starting line and you don't know why they're at this starting line so you just join them and then the next thing you know you're running this race and you're getting tired and you're getting slowly burnt out and you think why am i doing this <laughs> Why am I running with all these people? And like, well, what else? What else do I do? <laughs> and so this is for me, this idea of like, well, what, how do I choose? And if I'm going to choose something, what could it be? Which means it's a design problem. Yes. It, it's just like you explained. I love that explanation. And it's, um, I think, just like you said, there are moments in our life where we stop and think, hold on one second, why, why was I doing this? 
And for different people, it happens in different moments. Uh, for some people, it happens as, you know, early on as they come out of school and they have a great sense of self-awareness and they want to kind of take charge of their life. But like you said, for most people, life happens to us versus you defining and designing and imagining that life. But for almost everyone, there's a time where you suddenly go, hold on one second. Like, what's my purpose? Why am I here? What's the, like, this quest for meaning? And that's a great moment to think about designing your life. I think that's why people connect with the idea. And then there the when you dig a little deeper, you know, like the principles of design that I talk about is about optimism. You know, no matter how hard the problem that we're going to come up with a better solution or empathy, empathy for other people, but also empathy for yourself. Collaboration, you know, asking for help and giving help and building on each other's ideas and and an open mind, knowing that, you know, sometimes, often the, the ideas come from like the worst places, right? Like, I mean, the economy crashed and then that's what led me to this awakening. So it, um, those are the kinds of things or s seeing the big picture so you can connect the dots in new and different ways. Those are like the principles of design and which allows people to think about their life, something very personal, very serious, uh, but to think about it um, in a safe space because creativity does create a safe space and gives you the freedom to play with ideas. And one of the things, like we started our conversation with, what's your emotion? The emotion of design is playful uh, because when we're playing, we're like kids. We're not afraid of making mistakes. And that is essential because the, the more challenging the problem the more playfulness you need mm -hmm. of like, what if I did this? What if I did that? You know, and but this plus this makes that. And then this plus that makes this. Well, that's a good idea. Mm. So I think that's what makes the process work. And then if I may add one more thing is like that simplicity I talked about in the beginning is essential because my goal was to make this accessible to everyone, not just designers, really to anyone who's interested from ages like 10 all the way to 100. And I have worked with kids who are 13 and people who are 90 plus, and the process works uh, and it's transformative. It's one of our core values. You know, me and Carlos have known each other for 40 years, went to school together. And it was kind of awkward trying to work out what our company values were when we've been friends for so long. But play was one of the things that, that actually came up when we, did that exercise probably 15 years ago now because I think we had both experienced work and business being the opposite actually that a lot of the work environments we'd been in and actually some of the creative um, companies I've been in on the outside had the feeling of play but on the inside didn't feel that way and again you can have a overbearing boss or you can have a project you don't believe in There's so many reasons why I think it's hard to live those values but yeah I think for us that's always been at the heart of all of our work, whether it's summer camp or the programs we run or anything we do, we try and bring that element of play to it. And like you said, particularly around the idea that some of the conversations and topics that get brought up are very um, important to people. And so in some ways you don't want to make it seem frivolous, but 
trying to lighten that load is important. Otherwise, you can just spin out and go around in circles, we found. So, yeah, I totally uh, resonate with that idea. I feel like our ideas are so aligned. You talk about happy. I mean, the, the, who has the word happy in their um, business, right? And mm. then for me, who has the word love? But the, the, this, I think we're all communicating that all of this is for a purpose and that purpose is to bring joy to people's lives, you know? Well, the, the, the way I, I connect these, and I think this is, we, you mentioned this in the past. So there's, when I think about the love, there's, design the life you love. I, the word optimism, again, springs to mind. It's something that excites you, something that's pulling you towards the future. You know, something that's driving you towards a place rather than running away from somewhere. You're going to somewhere that, that, that you you want to go to. And then there's the aspect of like, there's different ways potentially to get there. Um, and that's the creative aspect of it. And for me, having the word play is not only just the feeling of joy, maybe in the process, but also the expansiveness and openness of all the different possibilities there's so many different ways we can do that so let's let's play with them let's try all the different things and see like you were saying before some dots might connect and suddenly something this ah this is what we could do this is what we could create and and this is in all within service of something and that's the other aspect i think that's coming out this is idea of meaning anya mentioned something about you know this attraction to this idea of designing the life you love may be coming from this lack of agency in our lives. And mm -hmm. so how do I then find more agency? So what does that mean in terms of what kind of life does that, that um, have to be? But ultimately, there's a lack of meaning without agency. Totally. We and I, I think um, when I was reading Anya's question or um, statement, I was thinking, for me, the first step is giving yourself permission And that's not that easy, but giving yourself permission to design mm. your life or to have that kind of agency. And I think um, it's with the understanding that um, agency doesn't mean that you can do anything you want. I don't think we get the, uh, the liberty that no one gets that. It's just uh, being intentional. And like you said, like, thinking about what, what's meaningful for me, what, what are my values, how do I bring them to life? And that, to me, this is like a, a lifelong journey. I, I've been talking about design the life you love for, I think, um, 15 years now and doing it. And just the other day, I was working with my coach and I said, I think I need to design my life. <laughs> and then we started laughing. You know, and I said, you know, I've written a book about that. But it was as if suddenly I was hearing myself for the first time. And mm. it had to do with the fact that, of course, the kids have grown up and now like a new page is opening and, and I need to design my life. And then and that's exactly what I'm doing now. But it's mm. uh, so to say, like, I think all these things we're talking about agency or finding meaning, they don't happen overnight. I don't think it's it's a. Yeah. It's a, a renewal process. It feels like, you know, different phases of your life. It's not like you do it once and you're done. It's a, it's an ongoing evolution of your, as kids get older or work changes or life changes, the world changes. Yeah, exactly. I think, actually, it was a bit about agency. It's like, yes, 
doesn't mean you can do anything you want. And I was going to say, actually, it does. But also it means you are responsible for what you do. Mm-hmm. It's like when you are given full autonomy and full agency, and if you want it, because I, I, and I'm relating it back to when we used to run an agency, and, an agency, giving people agency within that agency. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, but there was this element of like, but there's, that meant they also had responsibility or they felt responsibility because any mm-hmm. choice they mm-hmm. made was down to them. And so without that sense of responsibility, agency can be very destructive. I think this is what I'm, I'm coming up with. So we, part of this, I think I wanted to communicate is we are very much advocates for do whatever you want, but understand there may be consequences and repercussions. And uh, you talked about before empathy. There's empathy for ourselves, but then there's empathy for others. So, so we could, you know, do whatever we want in terms of our businesses, but actually are we able to take ownership of what that also means for other people? Which then also then connects to this idea of having a coach. And which ties nicely to the idea of collaboration, right? So I started working with my coach, Gene um, Easy. Gene uh, Easy. I always say Gene Easy because he makes things easy for me. Sorry for that. Gene <laughs> <laughs> Early. It's a designer you keep branding, you know, can't stop. Yeah. <laughs> but it's um, like I felt that I needed somebody that I could collaborate with and just like in other projects, if this is a project, and it is, I needed the wisdom and the expertise of somebody other than myself and to have that back and forth and found it incredibly um, helpful. Because, well, thank you for uh, saying, like, I know, I know what I'm talking about, uh, but sometimes you don't know how to listen <laughs> to yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm also part of uh, 100 Coaches, which is a community that Marshall Goldsmith um, started. And so I'll do a little uh, detour, but Marshall Goldsmith is known as the world's number one leadership coach. And I am, for full disclosure, I am Marshall's coach. So, <laughs> And he's my mentor. So it's kind of like... But uh, so I met Marshall when he was coaching a CEO that I was working with. And then we became friends. And then when my book came out, um, he said, Aisha, to promote your book, why don't you do a session and I'll invite my friends. And then he showed up with 70 of his friends. <laughs> and yeah, Mar- Marshall, I mean, when he shows up, every- everybody wants to be there. So uh, we had like our biggest session at the time. And then... Um, in the moment, he he himself did the process, and I ask people who their heroes are to inspire them. And then, um, so Marshall said, my heroes are my teachers, people who, who've taught me everything I know. And then I said, so what are you going to do to be more like your heroes? And then he had this big aha where he realized, I need to teach everything I know to others for free. And from that, uh, he started the movement and he invited, uh, he put a, a message on LinkedIn, a video, and he said, anybody who wants to learn how I think, I'm inviting 15 people to learn from me. And then 17,000 people replied. <laughs> wow. So then, you know, he started 100 Coaches and I call myself member number one. And Marshall always gives me credit because he says this happened at your session 
So I'm very familiar with coaching and surrounded with amazing coaching friends. And I think that we can all use a coach one to one time for, or another. Uh, the thing that really stuck with me is like we sometimes find it hard to listen to ourselves. Yeah. I think that would resonate with a lot of people. And on the topic of collaboration, the other thing is like sometimes we listen to ourselves in the wrong way in the sense that, you know, we work with a lot of people. We're trying to help them create and they have these things they want to create and sometimes they've created things and they're just not sharing them with the world or they're creating things and they've got a very myopic view about how it should be and there's something here around whether it's with a coach with other people just having a process of co collaboration co-creation you call it and you we talked previously about co-design how valuable that can be in terms of really amplifying the the beauty the impact the simplicity even of whatever it is you want to birth or, or, or offer to people and so maybe what i'd like to hear and just get your take on for anyone out there who's scared of sharing anything that they've ever made mm -hmm. not to the extent that they wouldn't even share the to the world they made something they think they want to give it to everyone you know to actually offer it as a product or a service but they they've kept it so tightly that it isn't even out there and and that's there's something around uh, maybe why it would be so beneficial for them in your perspective to start sharing and, and co-creating or letting go a bit let's put it that way that's a great question and um, there are two pieces of benefit in my mind one is when you make something public it makes it real and it, it makes it real and it's harder to walk away from when you have an idea, but you don't share it, I would just want to ask, is it quite real? Because once it's public, and it could be public that um, you share it with your intimate circle, you share it with your friends, and then the bigger circle, you share it with your community, and then you, know, you share it on LinkedIn like uh, Marshall did. And mm. then that's when you realize, like, if Marshall had had this idea and kept it to himself... Nothing would have happened. Once he put it on LinkedIn, he hit on... It, it was like an experiment, right? Hmm. We experiment. And we have, I think, to somebody who would keep their ideas kind of close to them, I would say, we have so many ideas. And you have to put them out there and see which one sticks. Like, I didn't know this idea was going to stick, right? I started as an experiment and then people responded to it. If this didn't work, I would have found some, something else and you would have found something else, right? So that's one piece of it. The other piece that I wanted to come back to collaboration because we use the word collaboration, but with, um, recently I did a long study into um, aging. And what I realized is collaboration is actually simply asking people for help and giving people help. And once you start to do that, that does two things. One is it builds trust, but two, it creates friendships. Mm. Trust is essential to friendships. Collaboration builds trust, leads to friendships. And this is what we're, the three of us are doing here right now, actually. Maybe to everyone listening, it seems like we're doing a, a fire chat, fireside chat. But we're actually building our friendship because mm. if this conversation, like an hour ago, we, we didn't have this conversation. 
Now we're collaborating, we're having this conversation. This conversation is gonna lead to other conversations and other collaborations. And it gives us opportunities to hang out together. Mm. And this is, I think, so important um, that I wanna tell everyone here, uh, <laughs> work, work with your friends and become friends with people you work with. To mm. me, that's one of the essential pieces of finding meaning in, in life. And it's fun, come on, you know? <laughs> I was really curious that you you say that in terms of friendship and this idea of work. As as someone actually, Francis shared a podcast with me recently from the Squiggly Career People about how to find friendship at work. <laughs> but there's there's this real challenge. I think some people find it difficult to marry this idea of friendship and work. And there's and there's in you know, my hunch is there's something around the idea of the emotional aspect of how we turn up at work and how we're supposed to be professional and how we're supposed to be able to, you know, there's something, there's a safety in the process because you don't have to think, you don't have to negotiate or you don't have to deal with conflict so much. It's like it's either a computer says yes or computer says no. And so boom, if I'm in a, in a business with a culture that's like very much all right, you do this, you do that and we'll be fine. As opposed to when you're working with people that you enjoy working with and there's, you know, start having an emotional connection and you start talking at different levels. There's a experience there that I think adds to the work. But then there's also, you know, you have to be comfortable with maybe a bit of conflict and other other emotions that come into a relationship. So I'm I think what I'm trying to get at there is like I think it's when you talk about friendship, I think it's being open, opening ourselves up to all of the person that we're working with, not just the transactional side of like, oh, you got that skill, you've got that thing you can offer. I got, you know. I mean, there's a piece of something that I've been practicing and trying to learn is to have unconditional love. Mm -hmm. And how, how do you do that? How do you do that across the board, you know? Mm -hmm. And to be able to see other people with empathy. And, you know, often... What bugs us about other people are the same things that we have, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, all these things tie together, right? When we have empathy for ourselves and other people and we can be forgiving and unconditional, it's not just about them. It's also about us and mm -hmm. loving ourselves. So it, <laughs> and then this is the other thing that I learned from this uh, design research we did about aging is that as we age, we learn to love ourselves and self-acceptance. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like, I mean, these are things that I couldn't have talked about, even th thought about 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but now it's, um, both my research and my uh, where I'm at with my own life are coming together. Mm. Um, and my whole thing is, okay, well, I didn't know how to think about these 20 years ago, but I wish I did, you know? Mm. I wish I knew, I knew how to love myself more mm. when I was younger. There was something around harvesting and capturing, well, this communicating what you found with the research yeah. to help others think about this long life you know this is what i love about how projects like we're very lucky because i think we're all here working on projects and not everybody works on projects or think thinks in projects but what i love about projects is they they're 
a journey. They take you places. So my my project, like being a designer, it's natural for me to think in project terms, right? And, um, and to kind of go into this unknown of like uh, the ambiguity of like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. So design the life you love taught me one thing, and that is everybody is extraordinarily creative. And um, I was at the design conference on uh, Monday and Tuesday, and somebody said, we're all designers until school kind of kicks it mm -hmm. out of us. And I thought, I know exactly what you mean. So anyways, what I found is if I can share my process and tools with people, you know, because I need my process to be creative, right? Then they are extraordinarily creative. They just need a little bit of guidance of like, how do you think creatively? Anyways, once I realized that people can transform their lives through design, pure design, it made me realize they can think creatively about any subset of their lives and we can co-design with this. And so then we went to our clients like GE and said, why don't we design co-design laundry with people? Why don't we? And then we went to um, Toyota and then we said, why don't we actually, they asked us like co-design luxury vehicles together, adventure with millennials together, and then excellence with Harvard Business Review, and then you name it. And we ended up doing these co-design um, studies, which were incredibly exciting and rich in how, like understanding how your end users think to build empathy with them. And then for them to trust you through that collaboration that I was just talking about. So then we became together with my team really interested in the aging space because we had aging parents and we realized there is not much out there for them. So I um, talked at Amazon one time and then I told, as I was leaving, I told my host, if you ever work on aging, my team and I, we want to work on aging. And they said, we need you right now, which never happens, right? <laughs> and that was our first project. We uh, co-designed aging with people who are 65 plus with Amazon. And then through our work with Amazon, we got connected with the SCAN Foundation, which is the probably the most important nonprofit in the States around aging policy for, um, for the government. And here's the what I wanted to come to. Together, we created this year-long research co-designing with people who are 65 and older their lives and that changed everything um, because most aging research is very reductionist it says you know you age and something breaks down whether it's your family structure financial structure work structure social structure but when you co-design with older people by the way none of them thought it was too late to design their lives so mm. even when they were 90, we realized that they have a growth mindset and none of them see their lives as shrinking. Of course, they have challenges and you know these challenges happen at different times, but that they're all about this expansionist viewpoint of like, what's next? And anyways, that changed our perspective. And I learned all these lessons and then realized when we finished the research, I was like, what do I do now? This is such an incredible message. And I just want to, what, what is the message? The message is we have another 20 to 30 years 
longer to live. We didn't have this time before. Like our grandparents and great grandparents didn't have this time before. And this is so exciting. This to me, it's like the the invention of uh, moving pictures or like automobiles. And as um, designers and creatives and entrepreneurs, we're at the cusp of this moment where nothing has been designed for this era because this era didn't exist before. And I thought, I want to tell, like, I want to shout this from the rooftops and get people to understand, do you realize how thrilling this is? Mm-hmm. And, um, and furthermore, how amazing these older people are. And so all those, the lessons I learned from them that I thought, I wish I knew this when I was younger, went into this new book. Well, we have the link for anyone who wants to pre-order. Um, please, um, well, check out the link. One thing I would pick up on just that, you demonstrating that idea of how to collaborate, you saying, you know, you asking for help to Amazon at that moment led you on this path. It's a very simple ask. It sounded like open the door to this coming to life, which again, is a great example of, yeah, you showed a bit of a vulnerability there by asking that question. Um, but the other aspect for me is more just, it feels like, and I think we talked about this when we first spoke, I'd only recently finished the 100 Year Life book, which again, touches on similar ideas around this um, opportunity that that we have to make the most of this new phase. And so for me, it feels like almost a changing the narrative around aging really feels like a bigger mission for this project. Is that right for you? Because that feels to me like at the cusp of this is, it's not just about teaching people how to make the most of the time they got, but actually to tell stories of it's not as bad as society's almost told us it is because there seems to be a lot of negativity around getting old, right? And me and Carlos are hitting 50 next year and already uh, feeling a bit funny about that. So um, yeah, it's nice to have stories of hope and optimism. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm amazed at this reductionist point of view. You know, I come from Turkey and I live in New York and it's this like these two opposing cultures, right? The uh, Eastern cultures and Carlos, you and I talked a little bit about this. Of like, I come from a culture where you respect your elders and value them. And to this day, my best advisors are like my 80 year old aunts and uncles because I can't figure it out. I, you know, mm. <laughs> and I'll, you know, they'll help me. And then the, the youth culture in the States where the young are revered. And and my sense is actually we're more alike than we think we are. And it's not an either or situation. It's both. You know, mm. we we need all of those things working together and we have so much to learn from each other. Well, I'd like to pick up on that one because I think we are in a very unique time. Well, actually, that's an oxymoron. We're always in a unique time. There's no, no time is the same unique, as the other time. More unique. <laughs> <laughs> this is more unique but the, i think the thing well, uh, the way i'll ground this yeah like lauren said i'm going to be 50 next year i don't feel any different to how i was when i was 30 and i could even arguably say when i was 25 20 like the the things i like doing the energy i have for life has not changed and so i can remember a few years back at summer camp sort of like giving a bit of a welcome talk and thinking, saying something along the lines, I'll see you all here when we're 80. And this whole idea that actually, rather than, oh, as I get older, I have to get more serious. And, you know, there's something about the the world narrowing down as I get older. is like, 
I love this idea that how how do more opportunities turn up for us as we get older? How can we look at the future of our older selves in a much more optimistic way of all of the adventures that are still to come as opposed to, all right, I have to get everything done now. Even just like how that affects our energy because one of the things I, I believe that I've taken from my life and we talk about it a bit about the happy start is the slow, stupid route of just not rushing anywhere, right. of just pacing oh. ourselves through life. Whereas we haven't yeah. got a massive business. No, yes, we're not millionaires, but at the same time, you know, in it for the long game in terms of, I want to still be around doing similar things when I'm 60, maybe when I'm 70, slightly less when I'm 80, but still open up to the world. I'd love to see myself sat at a fire pit at the age of 80, talking to some 30-year-olds, 20-year-olds at summer camp about what it's <laughs> yeah. like to, to live a life. And you'll have hair, hair down by your ankles and you'll be wearing a sort of <laughs> guru's robe or toga. No, I'd be, I'd be in beach shorts and a vest. And like <laughs> laughing pick, all the time. Laughing, yeah. exactly. There we go. Exactly. If, that, if, that, if we can have that, not have this ageist thing of like, oh, you can't be a kid when you're 50. It's like, yes, why can't we? Why can't we... In, play have a attitude of excitement and play no matter what age you are our research showed us that the thrill is not gone it's very much on so we have some things to look forward to yeah that's the t-shirt right Pauline <laughs> yeah. um, had a couple of questions i know we've got two minutes just to maybe answer one of those she's a product designer looking to transition to work for herself and create her own products rather than work just for clients and I think mm-hmm. she, her question was just around you starting to design the life you love during a recession. Any advice for anyone who's looking to build their own brand or products in the next year at the moment of, you know, it's a challenging time, right, for a lot of people? That's a great question. F- first of all, I think challenging moments are disruptive. And so they're actually great moments for change. Because if things are going super well, why would you want to change them, right? Like if the economy didn't hit, why would I like change what was working? And then similarly, like COVID hit and I started doing these weekly virtual teas, which are at 5 p.m. New York time. So for you, it's a little bit, it's like you're 10 p.m. So for any late birds, you're invited Mm. to my um, virtual teas. So I would say the timing, challenging times are good times for change. And the way I would do it is, if possible, not to completely drop one thing and start another but to mm-hmm. have to create kind of like a transition or a runway. So, for example, I started doing Design the Life You Love, but I continued my studio and figured out, how, got creative with using my time so I could do both, which, you know, it's not easy to do, but uh, you'll hear a lot of people talk about, like authors talk about, they, they write their books early in the morning and then they go do something else to earn their bread. And that's mm-hmm. kind of, that that's that's true for me as well. Like I'll do all my experiments and kind of things that don't pay yet early in the mornings on weekends and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. then still continue with client work until I can switch. You know, yeah. that's yeah. the eighty twenty. Like mm, your Google time. And on that, because I, I saw a post by David Hyatt that said something similar. Like you know, during times of. Uh, recession and, and challenge then there's opportunity which you know makes really useful sense but I also want to say that this is a something here around having a bit of self-compassion around this in terms of when you're scared 
you're scared. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter when there's a recession. If there's not a recession, it's like if there's a fear of doing something new, there's a fear of doing something new. And it's even worse when there's other fear going on around you. So there's an element here of just and like you, Aisha, you, you're talking about creating a level of safety because the, you're not putting all your eggs in one basket. The thing you're creating is not going to be suddenly an existential crisis if it doesn't work. So I just wanted to really strong feelings about this. Just to acknowledge is like, yes, there are opportunities in recession, but don't think like if I don't do it, then there's something wrong with me. It's like we also have to get used to uncertainty, really get used to the fear of maybe the money might not be there because there's a risk involved with all of this. Mm. And so if if we accept that there is a risk and, and somehow we will work it out. And that's the thing. I think that's the hardest thing for most people to believe that they will work it out. Because we're so, we hold on so much to, to certainty. And that's the journey that I've been on, particularly, like holding on so much. Like, where is this going to lead? How how do I guarantee that this is going to be a success? As opposed to, you're talking about lots of experiments and some things will fail. That's such an excellent point. Um, I think part of it is something that I learned from another friend, uh, Michael Bengay Stainer, who just wrote a book called How to Begin. I would recommend that to everyone as well, mm. where he talks about, and he talked to me, actually, uh, he's in my book as well, about the ambiguity of great projects. I mean, that, that's what's exciting is the ambiguity, is that you don't know. If you knew it, it would be a done deal, right? And I, I try to, it's not like I, I'm saying these things, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I practice them all the time. I'm saying it to also hear myself. <laughs> and I'm learning this. Like, I'm comfortable with the unknown. And, and I'll try to control things that I can control. But then there are other things. I'll do them. I don't know where, what they will lead to. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Happy Entrepreneur Podcast. To hear more inspiring conversations like this, follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search for The Happy Entrepreneur. In March, we'll be launching Tribe 7 of our Vision 2020 program. If you're at a point in your career or entrepreneurial journey where you're asking yourself, what next? And you need the clarity and confidence to make some bold decisions about a new direction, then this program is for you. We'll help you define what success really means to you, understand the impact that is yours to make, Make sure your mission is both energetically and financially sustainable and also learn how to build a supportive community around yourself. We want people who are driven to do good in the world and are tired of trying to do it on their own. We'll share the key lessons we've learned while building the Happy Startup School and pivoting from the stressful peaks and troughs of agency life to a life of freedom, adventure, service and connection. We value learning, play and friendship and we'd like to help you discover the values and the work that align more to who you are. Don't struggle alone and don't get sidetracked by other people's measures of success. Discover for yourself what it means to create effortless impact. To apply for the next tribe, go to vision.happystartups.co. We look forward to hearing from you.